1 Kings chapter 18. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in caves, uh, two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognised him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Oh, do keep that um, open in front of you um, as we come to look at this um, story together. Um, hearing um, people's testimonies uh, of meeting Jesus or their experience of following him can be uh, it can be really encouraging, a uh, wonderfully encouraging thing to hear, hearing of the, the transformation that, that takes place in people's lives. Uh, stories, perhaps, of uh, the Lord intervening in wonderful ways um, to rescue them from something or, or a situation, to, to give them a future when, when all seems bleak. Uh, you often hear those stories. Uh, I used to be involved in university mission weeks and 
uh, or events weeks, and often it's the, the big stories that get put up at the front to show people that, like, look what the Lord can do as he transforms people's lives. Uh, but the danger of only hearing those stories and focusing on those big stories is that we miss the smaller stories of ordinary faithful believers just plodding on, trusting Jesus. Uh, or even what's uh, the reality for some believers is that those big miraculous transformational stories don't always happen in the way that they might like people go through things and experience things and sometimes they're not delivered Uh, i suspect that most of us here if you're familiar with the bible uh, will know about um, the the big event that's about to happen in verse uh, chapter 18 16 onwards when um, elijah confronts the prophets of baal that takes place on mount carmel Um, If you're not familiar with it, it's a great story, and we'll get there in actually a couple of weeks' time. Uh, But what we tend to miss and what I overlook is uh, Obadiah, the palace administrator, the the Connie Pringle of Samaria. Uh, And uh, I nearly called him Connie then. No, Obadiah, (laughs) um, he's been faithfully getting on with following the Lord in the situation that he he himself is in. Uh, He's not had miraculous provision, we've not been told at least, like Elijah did in the uh, the brook where he was fed by the ravens or the the raising of the widow's son. He's not had that experience. No, he's lived under Ahab's rule as the mayor of the lands, uh, Ahab's right-hand man, but faithfully serving the Lord. Uh, And as we look at this little story, uh, particularly in verses 1 to 15... As we're sort of on the eve of the contest between Baal and the Baal's prophets and Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, uh, we're going to see what life living life should what life normally looks like for people who are waiting for God to act. Uh, and it's a bit sobering, really, because the first thing that we see is that following Jesus is costly. Living waiting for God to act is costly. Uh, we love stories of triumph of, or transformation. They, they inspire us. But if we only ever hear those stories, it can be misleading. Because for most of us, the Christian life isn't one of daily triumph, is it? It's ordinary plodding. Uh, waking each day and choosing to follow Jesus. Choosing to be faithful when it's difficult Choosing to, to love a church family when sometimes they wind you up the wrong way or make, make you feel, make life difficult. See, for all that's been extraordinary for Elijah as he's lived out in Zarephath for the last three years and experienced God's miraculous blessing, Obadiah has just been serving faithfully for the Lord right under Ahab's nose. Uh, and we're told in 18 verse 1 that Elijah is told to go back to Samaria to confront Ahab, to, to say the Lord is about to act. He's going to bring uh, rain on the land. But then it's interrupted as we meet um, Obadiah. See, if, Obadiah, if Ahab is President Snow in the Hunger Games saga, then I think Obadiah is a bit like Plutarch, Havens, Heavensby, if you know the stories. He's, he seems to be working for the, bad, the baddies. But underneath, he's actually, uh, to use traitor's language, he's a faithful. Sorry if I've ruined the Hunger Games for you. 
He's the right-hand man. Or maybe you know the story of Corrie ten Boom, the true story of Corrie ten Boom, who helped and protected Jewish, um, Jewish people during the Second World War. She hid them in her house. See, he's God's man on the inside of the camp. Uh, We're told, look down at sentence number four. Uh, We're told that while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Uh, Jezebel's really bad. We're going to meet her again. Um, No one calls their children Jezebel, and it's for a good reason. She's really, really bad. But Obadiah, despite the terror of Jezebel and Ahab wanting to kill the Lord's prophets, uh, he's putting them in caves, hiding them, uh, and he feeds them out of his own pocket with food and water. And interestingly, the word fed there, or, um, or supplied, I should say, in our translation, it is the same word that's used of the ravens and the widow in chapter 17, the, the provision for the Lord's people. As God sent ravens and a widow to provide for Elijah, so God's prophets in Samaria are provided for by Obadiah, the faithful servant of the Lord, right under the nose of Ahab. But see the cost that he's facing. Following Jesus is costly. Trusting Jesus and waiting for God to act is costly. He's living in a land that is full of famine and drought, and yet providing for others, presumably out of his own pocket to some degree, trusting that the Lord's prophets are the ones that need protection and need to be kept safe, using the position he has and the person he is to to serve God's people in the best way he can. You see, while Ahab is out looking, um, look down at um, uh, verse 5, Ahab is out looking for grass and animals. Uh, it seems he's only concerned for the economy and for the, the power of the land. He's desperate to find a solution to, to the, the poverty that's coming on the land. Well, Obadiah's concerned for the people. Obadiah fears the Lord, we're told, since youth. And faithfully lives for the Lord, even though it's going to cost, it seems to cost him. It's, am- it's amazing, really. Three years that he's been doing this, probably. But with nothing impressive, no great miracles, no resurrections to give him hope. Just faithfully plodding along, facing the cost of service to the Lord. We've said all along as we've been looking at, at this uh, book that, or this section of, of 1 and 2 Kings uh, that it's written that the, the original readers are probably those that are living in exile in Babylon. Um, those that have already been handed over to Babylonian rule. They're away from the, their lands. They're away from the temple. The temple's been destroyed and ransacked. And they're hearing about how the Lord kept Elijah in the midst of disaster and They're encouraged to listen to the word of the Lord and trust him for daily manna. Well, here's what it looks like, people of Israel in Babylon. This is what it looks like to keep trusting the Lord. It means facing the cost of trusting him in the middle of a hostile world. You see, when the pressure comes, 
When it feels like the pervading winds are hostile to trusting in the Lord, when people are dismissive of him or even oppose him, well, Obadiah stays faithful. And that's the story of God's people all the way through the Bible, those who follow the Lord. It's the story in the New Testament of of what it means to follow and wait for Jesus to act. You could read, for example, 1 Thessalonians, where Paul instructs the Thessalonians that they should expect difficulty, uh, expect cost, or Jesus' own words, to take up your cross and, and follow him. See, when the pressure comes, the danger is always, well, there are two dangers. Uh, the first is just to assimilate. That would have been easy for Obadiah, wouldn't it? To become like Ahab, to, to do what Ahab instructed him to do, to, to continue to worship, to, sorry, to change from worshipping the Lord to worship Baal, uh, to go to the temple and offer sacrifices to Baal, to, to kill off the Lord's prophets. And for us, it would be very easy for us, in the, the face of a culture that doesn't really like Christianity, that increasingly finds it distasteful or increasingly dangerous to believe. Well, it would be very easy for us as a church to, well, just to change what we believe, to become like the culture, to say what people want us to say, to simply believe and do what everyone else believes. That's one option for us, to assimilate. The other option is for us to withdraw Uh, To be like rabbits, that when danger comes, just retreat into their burrows and their own... I don't think rabbits have echo chambers, but you get my point. We retreat away and clamp down and hide away from the world, only listening to the people that are like us, disengage with the world. But Obadiah doesn't do either of those two things. Now, he keeps his head down, that's true. I'm sure he wasn't, no one was aware that this is what he's doing. But he's faithfully serving the Lord, doing what he can with the position he has and facing the cost of it. Now, obviously, our situation, thank the Lord, is very different from Obadiah's or even like Corrie ten Boom, isn't it? But remaining faithful is increasingly difficult in our day. Uh, For all sorts of reasons. Uh, It can often feel like we're missing out because we're following Jesus. Missing out on all sorts of things. Uh, Maybe the cost of missing out on a relationship because you want a spouse who will love Jesus more than you. And want someone that will point you to Jesus rather than take you away from him. Uh, Maybe you'd love to spend time with wider family and friends who don't live in Nottingham, but your commitment to this church family means that it's difficult to get away at weekends. Maybe you'd love to be further on in your career, but the choices that you've made to put Jesus and his people first have meant that you've missed out on that. Uh, Maybe just being part of a small church where not many people are like you means that it's difficult and you you feel on the fringe sometimes. Uh, If you're single here and don't have children for whatever reason, can can often feel like, well, maybe I'm on the edge here. I don't really belong. It's difficult. It can feel costly. Uh, Maybe there's someone in your class at school 
uh, that's being left out because they're different to others and different to you. And, and you know that Jesus calls you to be kind to them and love them, but, well, that will mean cost. It'll mean you're their friends. For some of us, it's the different choices we might, might make with our money. Maybe you are feeling the, the pinch of increased mortgage payments or the cost of living. But you've decided that you're going to reduce your standard of living before your standard of giving. Because you want to trust Jesus and follow him. It's costly following Jesus. The Bible's really clear about that. Uh, but secondly, it's also really scary. See, Obadiah, that's what we see in the second half of our story. Obadiah's been serving faithfully being the provider of safety for the prophets of the Lord. But crunch time is coming. Elijah is on the way to confront Ahab. And Obadiah is terrified, isn't he? Um, I like to watch Lord of the Rings, so I'm going to give you a clip. I think Obadiah is a bit like Pippin. So enjoy this. Hopefully it'll work. So I imagine this is just a ceremonial position. I mean... They don't actually expect me to do any fighting. Does he? You're in the service of the steward now. You'll have to do as you're told, Peregrine Tuku. escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf, for Frodo and Sam? There never was much hope. Just a fool's hope. Our enemy is ready. His full strength gathered. Uh, Just look down at verse 7, and you can hear the fear uh, in Obadiah's voice, can't you? As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they, would not, they could not find you. But now you tell me, go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 
hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Uh, Obadiah, for his faithful, costly service, as crunch time comes, he's afraid, isn't he? You want me to go and do what, Elijah? It's all right for you. You got whisked off into the desert and fed by ravens. But those of us that are here, if that happens again, that's the end of my life. Uh, Can't we just go on working in the background? Can't we just keep being faithful? Do we, do we need this confrontation? And Elijah says, no, this is the deep breath before the plunge. The Lord is about to act again. Go and get Ahab. You see, the Lord is about to act again, and he's about to bring rain on the land. But before that happens, Baal needs exposing for, for what it is that he's no God at all. You see, if rain just came back on the land, it'd be very easy for the people to think that Baal has got his act together. No, there's going to be a showdown on Mount Carmel. They need to know the famine and the drought is the Lord's judgment on their worship of false gods, that he's the Lord and that he's the one who can bring rain and rescue and mercy to the people. But this side of that showdown, it's scary for Obadiah. And he's full of questions. And they're similar questions, aren't they, to the widow. I don't know if you heard the widow's voice in his. Uh, Look down at sentence nine with me. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Very familiar, isn't it, to the widow and her question. Like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You don't know how big and scary Ahab is. You don't know how he's been trying to kill you. That's what we've been doing these last three years. We've looked for grass and animals and for you to kill. And if you don't turn up, well, it's curtains for me. Some have seen Obadiah as being faithless here. Uh, But I'm not so sure because I think there's a huge difference between being cowardly and being afraid of death, isn't there? I think Obadiah's a lot like Pippin in Lord of the Rings. Terrified. But when crunch time comes, he will fight. And we'll see what happens next uh, in a couple of weeks. See, Obadiah knows that faithfulness is costly. But it's also scary following Jesus. I mean, maybe you've been faithfully, faithfully following Jesus, asking God for opportunities. But you know that at some point you're going to have to make a stand that puts you in conflict with others. Now, what if you're told you can't teach about the uniqueness of Jesus when you teach RE in the school lesson? And you say, no, I can't do that. Because he is unique. And what if you're told as someone that works in the NHS that you must recommend abortion as an option? Or you can't work here any longer? 
Uh, what if as we as a church are told that we can't teach historical orthodox Christianity and keep using this premises? Uh, what if following Jesus means a difficult conversation with your spouse about how you're raising your children? What if following Jesus means you have to go against the hopes your parents have for you and the career that they want you to be doing? What if following Jesus means that you have to answer the question, do you believe in hell? It's scary, isn't it, following Jesus? And crunch time is coming for Obadiah and Elijah. But look at the encouragement Elijah gives. Sentence 15. As the Lord Almighty lives, literally the Lord of armies lives, before whom I stand. It's the same as chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah is in the presence of God, the Lord of armies. There will be a confrontation, and the Lord will win. Obadiah, remember who the Lord is, and he will fight for his people. He will deliver when crunch time comes. And so Obadiah goes to meet Ahab, verse 16, on the eve of this battle. The stage is set. The confrontation is coming. But you'll have to wait for that for a couple of weeks. But as we wait, let's just take encouragement from Obadiah. Following Jesus is costly need to be really clear about this. If you're someone who's exploring Christianity, uh, working out if, what it would mean to follow Jesus, you need to know up front that it will be costly for you. Jesus is really clear. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Most of the Christian life is lived in the ordinary, costly faithfulness of trusting him instead of trusting the idols of our day. And sometimes that cost will mean making decisions which might make us tremble. I love this quote from Kathleen Norris. She says this, The great religious struggle is not far off on a spectacular battleground, but within the ordinary human heart, when every morning we are awake and feel the pressures of the day crowding in on us, and we must choose what sort of immortals we wish to be. It's costly to follow Jesus. Uh, but it's also scary. It's been scary ever, forever. <laughs> it's always been the pattern. Right from Cain and Abel, faithfulness costs and it's scary. Uh, back in the second century, there was a church leader called Polycarp uh, and he'd probably been a disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, and he was, uh, as Rome was uh, clamping down on Christianity and wanting to kill the Christians, which was basically what happened in the, the second half of the first century and into the second century. Uh, at his trial, this story is told, the pro-council, those, are the, those, are the, those judging Polycarp, asked him whether he, Polycarp, was a Christian and on hearing that he was, he tried to they tried to persuade him to be, uh, to be apostate, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. 
Uh, the atheists in the second century weren't the Richard Dawkins. They were the people that didn't believe in the Roman gods. Polycarp didn't believe. He's an atheist. Sorry if that's confusing. Uh, Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Eighty-six years have I served Jesus, Polycarp declared, and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw them to you if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and turn towards what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, said the proconsul, I will have you burnt. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring on whatever you want. Scary. I presume that's been elaborated a little, but it must have been scary for Polycarp. Uh, Hannah and Nikki were two students um, that I worked with when I lived in Cambridge in a previous job. Uh, and they loved Jesus, and they were part of a Christian union in uh, Anglia Ruskin University that had only 10 or so students in the, the CU that identified, at least, with the, with the CU. Uh, it was a university that was exceptionally hostile to Christianity uh, for all sorts of reasons. But as sort of small as they were in the university, they wanted to put on an events week. I was encouraged by that, so I met them in a coffee shop and I said, well, maybe like, we could do some questionnaires, like we could stand in the corridor and try and like, talk to people and ask them what they think, or we could do, like, I don't know, hire a classroom and do a talk and see who comes and that kind of thing. Instead of that, what they did was they raised money from local churches and the ten of them put a big marquee up right in the middle of their campus in the quadrant. And they put on events every lunchtime and every evening. I think I've told this before, but Hannah, um, who was about this big, and very, very quiet, very quiet. At the end of her lectures, every day during the events week, she stood up in front of her lecture of about 150 artists uh, and invited them to every event and handed a flyer to them as they left. Following Jesus is costly and it can be scary. But as they did that, they saw loads of people come. I think the lunchtime talks, we often had 60 or 70 people listening to a talk about Jesus. Another student who was, I found inspiring, he was a student at Lincoln University. And he wanted to reach his rugby mates with the gospel. And so during an events week... Uh, to invite them along just before the game on a Wednesday afternoon, he put a copy of Mark's Gospel on every place in the changing room. Uh, And before they all got changed, he invited them to read the Gospel with him or come to a talk in the week. Modern-day Obadiahs. 
who know that it's costly following Jesus and sometimes really scary, go, no, I'm with him. People who trust Jesus, that when he says, what good is it for a man to profit the whole world and yet forfeit his life? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes with his glory, with his holy angels. See, brothers and sisters, there, there's a confrontation coming. King Jesus is going to return to judge the world. He's coming. He's going to expose all of the idols for what they are and show himself to be the one with all authority so that every knee bows to him. It's a day that has been set by the Father's authority. Now, the, the New Testament describes Christians as those who are waiting for Jesus to rescue them from the coming wrath, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. And he calls us to wait for that day, faithfully facing the cost and all that's scary about what it means to trust him. So what will it look like for you this week? I don't know, who, who's the Ahab you've got to go and talk to? What's the daily faithful cost that you're called to follow? It'll be different for each one of us this morning. But as we think about those things, let's ask God's Spirit to fix our minds on the true and greater Elijah. Now listen to these words from Hebrews as we close. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, we can take up our cross each day because Jesus has taken up his. We can face the cost because Jesus has paid the ultimate cost. We can go towards things that are scary because the great fear of Judgment Day, Jesus has faced already for us if our trust is in him. And we can fail in our courage And we can get it wrong because he's been faithful to the end. So let's consider him and not lose heart.